Father, thank you for your word and just the gift of, of being together this morning in worship. We pray that you would uh, now teach us by your spirit, help us to understand what we read and apply it to our lives. Lord, would you come and have your way here this morning? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, hey, good morning once again and welcome. We are uh, so glad that you're here, especially if you're new. We know it's hard being in a new place, trying out a new church. So welcome if this is your first time. And I just want to invite everyone to turn to John chapter 12, verse 20 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our sermon series, Walking Through the Gospel of John. Now, as we think about Jesus and some of the things we've already seen in the Gospel of John, there are a number of things that maybe for modern people today wouldn't be that objectionable. Or for people in Benicia in 2022, uh, there are things like the powerful teaching of Jesus that people would be drawn to, or the compassion of Jesus for sinners or for outsiders that would be uh, appealing to us, or we'd be drawn maybe even towards the miracles and the healings of Jesus. Uh, But there's often disagreement or a difficult time coming to terms with the cross of Christ and his death and the significance of it. Again, I think many people in Benicia, if they hear this invitation to, hey, follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus, maybe they could track with that initially. Or again, they see the compassion of Jesus on the woman at the well, and they're like, right on, or see some of the miracles, and there's some encouragement there. But When we look to the cross and consider God's plan of salvation and the reality of sin and Jesus' death, there's often, again, much less agreement. It's hard for a lot of us to come to terms with the cross and what it means. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the cross. We're going to see really this extended teaching of Jesus about his coming death. And just fair warning as we start, it kind of feels more like a shotgun blast than a rifle bullet, meaning uh, there's a lot of ground we're covering. It's going to cover a lot of uh, different kind of topics it will touch on. It seems like rather than like one or two or three main, you know, ideas and takeaways, it's like a seven or eight point sermon. Okay, so so first service, they were like, that was that was a long sermon. And I was like, I know. So uh, buckle up. Okay, we're, we're jumping right in and we're going to cover a lot of ground. So notice you heard how the section starts. Pastor Ian read the text aloud for us in John 20, said now there, excuse me, John 12, verse 20, said now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. An interesting sequence of events here, right? Verse 20 reminds us of the setting. It's uh, the time of Passover still. This festival is being celebrated. People are there for worship. Earlier in chapter 12 was uh, Palm Sunday, right? Jesus entering Jerusalem. These are the final days of Jesus' earthly life. He's only a few days away from the cross. And while there in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, these men come to Jesus and they want to talk to him. Strong strong start. That's a reasonable request. Hey, we want to see Jesus, they say. But Jesus doesn't really answer their 
request, right? He doesn't respond with, yeah, bring him in, put on some espresso, let's have a chat. He also doesn't turn him away, say, get out of here, I don't want to talk to you. He kind of goes another direction. Look at verse 23 with how he replies. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we talked about this last week, how the hour Jesus is talking about, his hour, uh, throughout the Gospel of John has always been in the future. It's always been out ahead. This big, uh, momentous, uh, climactic event is coming up ahead. He'll say things like earlier in chapter 2 to his mother, my time or my hour has not yet come. Or in chapter 7, it'll say again of Jesus, his hour had not yet come. And yet here in chapter 12, it's different, right? And instead he's saying, my hour has come. The hour for him to be glorified, meaning the time for the cross and the resurrection, his glorification, these climactic events at the end of the life of Jesus here are at hand. So kind of what everything earlier has been building up towards, it's here now. And he's going to tell us a few things, again, about his hour, about this time, these coming events. And by a few, I mean seven or eight. Okay, so the first takeaway this morning, he reminds us, or this text reminds us, that Jesus' death is for the nations. Okay, that's where we start. It's for the nations because what prompts all of this, right, is these Greeks coming to see Jesus at the time of Passover. That's what verse 20 and 21 tell us. There were Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Now, Greeks meaning not that they were from Greece, specifically, but they were Greeks in the sense of non-Jews. Okay, these are Gentiles. These are outsiders, people from other nations that had come to seek Jesus. Okay, there were often Gentiles who would come to maybe Jewish festivals like Passover with, with an interest or you know, maybe a curiosity, maybe even a, an appreciation for the faith of the Jews, and they would maybe want to know more. But you notice that so much of the ministry of Jesus previously was, was to the Jews, right? He's the, the Savior um, of the world, but he is the Jewish Messiah, fulfilling the Jewish scriptures, being born as a, a Jew. And yet, his mission was always to extend beyond the Jewish people. But it's almost as if this request from the Greeks, these outsiders who are there wanting to see Jesus, is this representation of uh, Jesus' mission and message, the message of the gospel, going to the nations. Their presence, their request symbolizes this, this global reach, this expansion of the gospel. Because we can look in Scripture and see that God's heart has always been for the nations, for, for the world, right? that every tribe, tongue, and nation would worship God and Him alone. If you go back to the beginning, let's think of the bookends of the Bible, okay? Go back to the beginning, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Chapter 12, God calls Abraham to be the father of a great nation, to essentially start the Jewish people. And it was from the Jewish people that the Messiah would come. And so God comes to Abraham, and he calls him, and he promises to bless him and make him into a great nation. But then, do you remember how he finishes that little statement there in chapter 12, verse 3? And through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. 
So I'm going to bless you, Abraham, but this doesn't just stop with you and your descendants. It's, it's through you that I actually want to do something for the whole world. Okay, first book of the Bible. Then you fast forward to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. When we read in Revelation chapter 5, it speaks of Jesus and how with his blood he purchased people from every tribe and people and nation. So from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible and in between, the heart of God and the message of the gospel is for the world. And we see this on display now in the ministry of Jesus, this expansion. And here's the deal, in the early church, you'll, you'll see this in the letters of the New Testament if you read through them. This was not necessarily an easy concept for the Jews to wrap their heads around. Even though it was clear in the Old Testament scriptures, there was this uh, way that the Jews kind of had to wrestle with, including the Gentiles. That, that the, the nations, the Gentiles could become part of the people of God, part of the family of God, not by becoming Jewish, but simply by faith in Christ. That in Christ now there is this new, beautiful, multi-ethnic family that is created. There's now unity in Christ across racial and ethnic lines, unlike anything that the world had seen before. And friends, I think we should be encouraged by this and the fact that even today, Christianity, yes, we have, we have plenty of work to do in this Area, but followers of Jesus realize are the most diverse religious group, religious movement in the history of the world. I want to share with you this chart that was from a Pew Research study um, a few years ago, and it shows the geographic distribution of religious groups. So on the side, it's again Hindus, Buddhists, and um, so on, all the way down. Um, the second from the bottom is Christians. And, and the colors there represent uh, different parts of the world. So the blue being Asia, the green being, uh, I think, Sub-Saharan Africa, then um, Europe, and Latin America, and North America, and so on. And so, so notice that um, many religious traditions, movements throughout the world are, are pretty isolated geographically and are kind of reserved to maybe one or, or a few people groups. But, but notice that the second from the bottom, the, the Christian column, how, how evenly spread out uh, its people are from almost, yeah, pretty even chunks of Asia, Africa, uh, Europe, Latin America, North America, and so on. It's encouraging to see this because we see how truly the message of the gospel, and I know it's a little hard to read, but um, has, has spread to the nations Author Rebecca McLaughlin speaks to this and kind of the significance of this by saying, many of us associate Christianity with white Western imperialism. And there are reasons for this, some quite ugly, regrettable reasons. But most of the world's Christians are neither white nor Western. And Christianity is getting less white Western by the day. Again, in conversations with non-Christians and comments maybe you'll hear or see in the media, one of the negative takes is that Christianity, as, as her quote says, is it's a kind of white Western uh, religion. But notice, again, the majority of Christians are not white or Western. So it reminds us of the, the global reach of the gospel, that we are part of this big, beautiful, diverse 
family of God throughout all the world, all because of Christ. And so in the text, we see that the Greeks and their requests represent this global mission of Christ. Second thing we see as he speaks of his coming death is that we're reminded that his death is required for life. Look at verse 24 as he continues, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be, and my Father will honor the one who serves me. So he uses an illustration from the world of agriculture, as he often does, speaking about seeds and plants and farming, things like that. And he makes two points here. First is that his life is really like a seed in the sense that he must fall to the ground, he must die in order to bring about new life and fruit. And this is the logic of the cross, right? It's in his death that we experience new life. And if he is spared from death and does not die, then much like a seed, then fruit will not come from it. His suffering brings about our peace and freedom. But notice here that he's not just speaking about his death, right? Because in a way, he's speaking about ours as well. What does he say in verse 25? Whoever loves their life will lose it. And anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it. In other words, we as followers of Jesus have to experience a kind of death in order to embrace this new life with Christ. It sounds a lot like what he said elsewhere, where he says, whoever tries to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. But if we try to hold on to our life, cling to our priorities and our selfish ways and doing things our way, then we will lose our lives. And yet if we die to self, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, it's ironically in that death that we find what true life is about. And so the call to follow Jesus means that we have to die to ourselves, meaning we prioritize Christ and his kingdom above our own preferences and desires. And it's not just self-denial or, or hating your life, as the text says, for the sake of self-denial, but it's so that we can turn and embrace Christ and follow him, right? Verse 26, it says, our, our life is found by receiving Jesus and following him, and we can't receive Christ and follow him if our hands are full already with our own ways. Thank you very much. And we know that many, for many believers throughout history, there has been like a, a, a real life and death decision made when following Christ. We know in certain parts of the world or certain times in history, following Christ meant uh, persecution. It meant the threat of loss of life. In the ancient Roman world, in fact, they could be, Christians could be brought before authorities and, and executed if they did not uh, give allegiance to Caesar. They had to, in that moment, deny Christ and pinch a little incense towards Caesar, say, Caesar is Lord, and they'd be free to go. But if they couldn't do that, they would be sentenced to death. And so for many people, 
this has been life and death. And yet for, for us here, right, in the West, there's a relative safety and protection and likely we're not being uh, executed for following Jesus. And yet there's still this call to die to self and embrace Christ no matter the cost. To say, Lord, it's you and your way. Lord, wherever you have placed me, how can I use my time and my uh, money and my priorities and my goals and direction in life to be about you? How do you want to use me? Following Jesus requires death. And it's been said that salvation is free, right? It's a free gift. And yet it costs us everything. This, this high cost of discipleship. And I know you might be hearing this and you're like, this is, I mean, that's pretty extreme. I mean, is this like the Navy SEAL Christian training course? You know, like there's like the Marine Christian training course. And then there's like, you know, the, the pedestrian Christian, you know, like entry, like basic Christian training. Um, is this like only for the real serious Christians? You know, like there's that Bible guy down the street who's like really kind of quirky and serious. Like that's for him, you know, but like the rest of us, we can, it's going to be kind of like more casual, right? No, but Jesus is talking about basic discipleship here, right? If anyone would follow me, whoever would come after him. And so the reality is for each of us, following Jesus shouldn't, can't uh, neatly fit into our lives. Right? If following Jesus is convenient for us, then there's a chance that we're not actually following Jesus. And so I asked the same question a few weeks ago. We have to consider, has following Jesus cost you anything? Has it cost us anything? I know for many of you it has. I know for many of you, you have given time and money and you're generous with both. You have reoriented the priorities of your life to follow Jesus I know for some of you, it's, it's led to some really hard decisions where you've had to say no to certain things or maybe uh, certain people or relationships because of your commitment to Christ and maybe a part of you really desired something, but, but you knew that God had something else for you instead. I know it's cost some of you comfort. I know some of you have had to open up your lives in ways that are really inconvenient in order to take care of those in need. I know that many of you have given, again, a lot of thought and intentionality to caring for the vulnerable in Jesus' name. I know many of you support kids with Compassion International, bringing people out of poverty in Jesus' name. So I'm not saying this assuming that it hasn't cost you anything, but we do have to ask the question for each of us, what has it cost us? Not because it's the cost that earns salvation, Right? It's a free gift, but then we should see some fruit, we should see some change of course and change of direction in response to this Jesus. Because the reality is when Jesus moves in, um, he rearranges the furniture in our house. Right? There's no getting around that. You, know, you don't have to clean up your living room for Jesus to come over, but once he comes over, he's going to be like, hey, we need to change some things around here. You know, like... We're going we're gonna to get you some new furniture. We're going to take a trip to Ikea because this, is, this isn't working, okay? Like, I'm glad to be here. I love you, but have you ever heard of a coaster? You know, we're going to go and, 
that painting, it, we, we're going to burn it, get that out of here. Like, we're going to, new rug, we need to figure some things out. You know, when Jesus moves in, he rearranges the furniture. We don't have to rearrange it in order for him to move in. But once he's there, he's going to change some things. For our good. Third point from the text. Jesus' death is painful, but purposeful. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. You see him continue. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So as he approaches the cross, you see he's, he's realizing the weight of it, bearing the sin of the world. And he says his soul is troubled. It sounds a lot like his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? If we you know, fast forward a few days to the garden where right before he's arrested, he's sweating blood. And similarly there, there's this question of like, is there, is there another way to accomplish salvation? Is there a way that he might be spared from the cross? Is, is it too much to bear the judgment for the sin of the world and separation from his father? So we see just the, very, the pain of the cross. My soul is troubled, he says. Now, there's this ancient heresy called docetism. And, and docetism back in the ancient world, coming from the Greek uh, root meaning to seem or to appear, taught that Jesus wasn't really human. He just seemed that way. Okay, Because Jesus is God and, and high and lofty, he couldn't get like, caught up in the whole like, human experience and taking on real flesh and blood. And so he looked like a human. He appeared that way, but it was really just kind of a, a facade. And so his suffering, similarly, was just a Facade. It just seemed or appeared like it was difficult, but really he didn't uh, take on humanity. He wasn't fully human. He didn't really go to the cross bearing the sin of the world and in truly uh, experiencing human suffering and separation from the Father and so on. This teaching was clearly rejected by the early church, rejected as heresy, because Scripture teaches that Jesus was fully human, yes, fully God, also fully human, and that he can then sympathize with us in our weakness. He was tested in every way and yet was without sin. And so it's in moments like this that we see the humanity of Jesus. We see his soul being troubled as he looks at the cross. We see the pain of the cross. And yet, notice he does not turn away from it. Even though it's painful, it's also purposeful. Because look, what does he say in verse 27? Should I turn from this? He says, no, for this very reason I came to this hour. He says, this is why I'm here, to go to the cross, to carry the sin of the world. And so on the cross, we see the love of God on display for us. And Jesus says, no, I, I came willingly. I didn't like stumble upon this whole like savior of the world role. You know, it wasn't like at Starbucks and there was like a help wanted ad and said savior of the world. And I threw my name, you know, in the ring and, and applied for the position and I got the position. And now, you know, I kind of stumbled into this and I, you know, started out my life. I didn't really think I'd end up savior of the world, but I just kind of, you know, along the way, here I am. And isn't that a, a, a trip? No, he, he knew what he was doing. There was purpose. 
He says, this is why I came to go to the cross. We have to see the purpose and intent of Christ and the will of God on display here. Because today, even even in certain Christian circles, there's this effort to kind of downplay the purpose of the cross or the will of God in the cross or will, you know, teach or explain the cross as some sort of tragic accident or, you know, isn't that sad that that, you know, happened to Jesus and it wasn't really necessary. You know, some, some kind of progressive Christian authors will say, well, Jesus didn't have to die. It wasn't necessary. God didn't want Jesus to die as if the Father demanded, you know, payment for Sin and because they'll say, well, that you know is very outdated and, and bloody and makes God look, you know, angry or whatever. And so they'll say, well, the cross was all about humanity's doing. It was all, you know, our doing. It wasn't God's idea. And of course, we see in the cross that it it is our sin on display, our rejection of Jesus, the the depth of depravity and the darkness of the human heart. Of course, our hand is on is is in that and on display on the cross. But we cannot ignore that the scriptures clearly teach the purpose and plan and will of God on display in the cross. And one of the simplest ways we could respond to such an objection is by looking to the words of Jesus. As Jesus says here in verse 27, this is why I'm here. This is why I came for this purpose. This was No accident. Acts chapter 2 puts it this way. Jesus was delivered up, given over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So this is God's plan of salvation rolling out. So the cross is painful and yet purposeful. We see verse 28, the next point. Jesus' death is for the Father's glory. Because he closes that moment by saying, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. We're not going to focus on the response to the voice, but what the voice says. And notice that though troubled, Jesus is resolved to go to the cross. His prayer is, Father, glorify your name. You notice Jesus taught us to pray that way, right? For the glory of our Father. He says, when you pray, pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Jesus taught us to pray for and and pursue the glory and the fame and the exaltation of God with all things. But Jesus didn't just say, hey, you should do that. He also modeled it. Right? And in this hour, he embraces the cross and desires the glory of his Father. And God responds, I have glorified my name. Showing that already in the life of Jesus, his incarnation, his, his work, his teaching, all of it has pointed to the Father. And yet the cross, on the cross, God will glorify his name again. Glory is a word that speaks to worth and value and weightiness and heaviness, really. And so God being glorified means he is shown to be beautiful and worthy and valuable and supreme. And it's in the cross that we see 
God's glory clearly revealed. Think about how Paul puts it in, in Romans chapter 3. It says, God presented Christ, this is verse uh, 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So notice what the text is saying. God demonstrates his righteousness on the cross. And verse 26 says he does this by showing that he is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. God is both just and justifier. Think about those two realities for a moment. Do you see how if it's just one of those realities, it's not good news for us? If it's just one of those, just or justifier, um, that doesn't give us really cause to celebrate. Think about it. If God is just, but he's not the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, then God will punish sin and evil and evildoers, right? The consequences for sin will be dealt with. We will face death and hell and judgment and separation from God. God will be completely just in leaving us in our sin and condemning us to death and separation from him forever. But again, that wouldn't be good news for us, right? But if it's the opposite, and well, God justifies without being just, and he says, yeah, you know, don't worry about the whole sin thing. Don't worry about justice. Don't worry about the consequences for sin. You know, just, just come on in. It's no big deal. It kind of winks at sin. Then he would not be just, and he would go against his very nature of being good and righteous, and sin would never truly be dealt with. And all evil and evildoers throughout eternity would be without consequence. Everyone would get away with everything. Right? If we knew a human judge in a court of law or in a city who uh, did not deal out justice, we would say that's, that's wrong and wicked. And they'd say, winks at every evildoer. And everyone who's guilty is like, don't worry about it. We would say, that's not right. There, there somehow has to be consequence for sin. Right, as people were wired for justice. And so this text tells us that it's in the cross God is shown to be both just and justifier. We see the justice of God and that he deals with sin and doesn't sweep it under the rug. And yet we see he's justifier, that we see the mercy of God, that he justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So justice and, and punishment for sin is seen to and dealt with while at the same time sinners can be saved. Thus in the cross we see the righteousness and the glory of God. God shows his amazing wisdom and power and beauty and worth that is worthy of our devotion and our worship. Fifth point, Jesus' death brings judgment Look at verse 31. He goes on, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Now, when we think about judgment according to Scripture, what do we usually think about? Uh, kind of, you know, something far out in the future, the return of Christ, you know, or us dying and being before the judgment seat 
of God at the, at the end of the age. Uh, and that's certainly part of it. But also we see that as Jesus goes to the cross, a form of judgment is taking place, he's saying. Judgment in the sense of the cross, again, revealing where we truly stand in relation to God. The cross being this decisive demonstration of our depravity and the darkness of the human heart. Our rejection of Christ on display. Our hard and dark hearts exposed. Throughout the Gospel of John, it speaks of the darkness of the world and our need. And the cross really shows this in this decisive judgment. This is who we are. And yet, there's also this decisive act of judgment on the ruler of this world. Do you see that in verse 31? The prince of this world <clears throat> will be driven out. Speaking of our great enemy, Jesus spoke of him back in John chapter 8, that on the cross he will drive out our enemy. And what appears, think about this, what appears to be victory for Satan, the death of Jesus, the death of the Son of God, is actually the way Jesus has victory over the enemy. God takes what looks like defeat. God takes the darkest day in human history and somehow redeems, transforms, uses it to bring about his victory and glory, putting Satan and the evil spiritual work of Satan to death. Ironically, turning Satan's own work against him this powerful reversal. Do you see that? And friends, here's why this matters. We see in the cross again this powerful transformation and reversal. What looks like death, Jesus taking it and using it for glory and victory. I was talking with someone this week about just the, the depths of their circumstances. They're in a really rough place in life for a number of different reasons. And they, as they were talking, was sharing just a, just a relative despair, of shame, of kind of hopelessness, of discouragement. And we talked through each of those specific things and what they were going through. And then towards the end, I said, hey, I, just, I need you to know and remember that even in this place of hopelessness, even in this place of darkness and desperation, God can work. And, and not only can God work and show up even in our darkest hours, it seems like it's, it's especially there that God shows up. It's especially when things feel hopeless and when we're overwhelmed and things look like death and defeat. It's especially there that, that Jesus, in his power, brings about transformation and victory and healing and, and redemption. And so I had to tell this person, don't, don't lose heart. I know that things look dark and difficult and you're weary and there's all sorts of complexity in this situation, but notice that there's no depth or, or pit that Jesus cannot enter and redeem if you let him, if you turn to him. He'll meet you there. Sixth point, Jesus' death draws people. See that in verse 32? And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. It's a powerful verse here. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Here, of course, being lifted up carries with it a double meaning. All right, so being lifted up, he's speaking of his death, going to the cross, 
Verse 33 says, but also being lifted up could mean being uh, exalted, made much of, celebrated. And so this double meaning is on display as Jesus goes to his death. And think about the context, right? In this verse, the Greeks coming to seek Jesus, saying, we want to see Jesus. So here now he says he will draw all people to himself. Again, a reminder that it's not about Jew or Gentile, but but all nations, all people will be drawn to him. There's this invitation for whoever would believe. And so notice just briefly two points about the drawing that Jesus does. First, um, Jesus is the one who draws us. Okay, And I say that because sometimes we think we're the ones who are the initiators. You know, we, we use words like seeker, you know, or like I'm searching for truth. And par- that may be true partially, but, but the scriptures show us that if we're seeking, if we're reaching out for God, it's because he has already reached out towards us. He's the one who makes the first move. Right? He initiates. He draws. He does a work in our hearts. And then whatever we do is in response. Even if we fully don't understand or realize what God has done in our hearts, if we are moving towards him, or seeking, it's because he has already drawn us. And friends, this is why we, we, we preach Christ crucified. This is why we, we look to the gospel every week and we sing about the gospel. Because this is what uh, God uses to draw us to himself. You don't want to just hear my wisdom you know, on a bunch of random life topics. You, uh, we need to see Jesus together. That's why we're here. That's what we do in worship. We look to the cross. We lift him up. We make much of him. And then he, he does his work and he draws us to himself as we do that. Second, notice that Jesus draws all people where? End of verse 32. To myself. Right? And so we're not drawn to, hear me, an object. Like just, the, you know, the wooden cross. Like a, a material object. We're not drawn to an idea. You know, some proposition that we give assent to. We're drawn to a person. Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus wants us to be with him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be in relationship with him. He wants you to walk with him. And friends, it's possible to be in church, to even be in church for like a long time and embrace ideas, or embrace you know, community, or other people, or embrace whatever, without actually embracing Christ, and actually trusting in Him personally. Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. We're drawn to a person, friends, not just abstract ideas. Point number seven. Oh, we're getting there. We're getting there. Jesus' death is misunderstood. Look at verse 34. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? The crowd, notice, is confused because last week their expectations for a Messiah uh, didn't exactly fit with uh, the Messiah that Jesus was and the King that Jesus was. And so I'm not going to go into this in depth uh, because that was like last week's sermon. Okay, So if you missed last week's sermon, you can find it on our website. Or if you heard it and want to hear it again, go listen to it because it's like the whole thing is point number seven and how our expectations and our thoughts about what Jesus should and be um, are not always in line with who he actually is. And so um, there you go. Point number eight, moving on. Okay. And this is a personal record, I think, guys. Eight-point eight sermon. 
this um, first service, they were like, that's like a new, a new high score, you know. So here, here we go, eight, eight, eighth point and final. Jesus' death invites us to believe and to become. Verse 35, Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Verse 36, believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Again, two simple key words to close, believe and become. Jesus says in verse 36, believe in the light, which I know sounds like maybe a line from a strange sci-fi movie or alien space movie or whatever, but believe in the light, he says, and he's speaking about himself. He's inviting us to trust in him. We've seen elsewhere throughout the Gospel of John this contrast between light and darkness, and we, we see that we're saved not by our works, but by believing in Jesus. He says, whoever believes in me has crossed over from death to life. And second, that you may become children of the light, he says. It's in Jesus we find this new identity, this new status, this new family as, as children of God. Earlier in John chapter 1, Jesus says, or it says that, that Jesus gave us the right to become children of God. That we could become sons and daughters of God, children of the light, so to speak, that we could live this, this new life in this new family with new hearts, all because of Jesus. Now, I know with, with the ground we've covered this morning, it's possible to have our thoughts maybe a little scattered. I know you're not probably going to remember uh, seven or eight points of an eight-point sermon, but the good news is that Jesus left us with, with one simple act by which we can remember the significance of the cross. <clears throat> he left us with one simple act, boiling it all down to remember him. See, that last night Jesus was with his disciples. He took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. And he, he took a cup and said, this cup is my blood. And he gives us these elements to take in remembrance of him. And so ever since, the followers of Jesus have taken the bread and the cup, remembering Jesus and the meaning of his death on the cross. He says, my body, my blood, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, that you'd be reconciled to the God who loves you. And so, again, if you're feeling a little scattered this morning, let's just bring it back to the simplicity of the cross and Jesus' sacrifice for you. So, friends, you should have received the elements when you came in. And I have mine here. I'm going to pray, and then we'll take these together. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your word that you have made yourself known to us, and You've, you've taught us about your coming death and what it means. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body and your shed blood for us, that you died in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for wanting to be with us. We worship you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. 
said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.